Welcome to Rave Dad's Diary, the show that explores the globalization of electronic dance music from the perspective of a rural Alberta boy turned raver. I'm your host and resident Rave Dad, Paul Brooks. Rave Dad's Diary broadcasts on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary at the University of Calgary campus and community radio station located on Treaty 7 land. I acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika, the Pagani, and Kaina First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Hello, hello. Welcome to the final weekly episode of Rave Dad's Diary. I announced last week that I'm transitioning the show to a monthly format because my life is full and busy and and good. It's a good thing. So don't fret. Rave Dad's Diary will be back next month in May as a 30-minute long monthly podcast. I also feel like I need to rejig this show because so much has changed since I started producing it in September of 2020. I started out by asking the question, with venues and nightclubs shuttered indefinitely, how will dance music and culture survive? Well, now the music industry is back in full swing, for better, for worse. Dance music and culture has definitely survived, but things are different. And I want to explore that contrast and tension in future episodes. So for this final weekly episode, I'm going to pull a few clips from the 70 plus episodes in the can, starting with episode one. So we're going to take a trip all the way back to September 2020. Uh, If you can remember back then, if you haven't completely blocked it out in your mind, Uh, I was fresh off of a layoff at that time from my dream job at the National Music Center We were heading into our first pandemic winter and I needed to throw myself into something because I was super depressed. So I got involved with CJSW again as a programmer and and I started working on this concept. For the first show, I wanted to go back to my humble roots. So we'll take a listen to this clip from episode one. And after the clip, I'll tell you how many hours it took me to produce this first episode. Because it took way more than I care to admit. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW. (laughs) 
In 2005, I was 18 years old, and I lived with my parents on an acreage outside the village of Alex in central Alberta, Canada. My very first job out of high school was working in the music department at A&B Sound Electronics Store in the city of Red Deer. Working at A&B Sound felt like working at Empire Records. We had a lot of fun during and after work. I started dating one of my co-workers named Adrian. Adrian was a raver, and her and her best friend Dusty were tapped into Calgary's club scene. They took me out dancing and introduced me to a world of fun and freedom I didn't know existed. One of the first tracks I remember losing my mind to was this one. Milo's remix of Freeform 5's No More Conversations. Because Adrian and Dusty sparked my love of electronic dance music and culture, I reached out and we reminisced and brainstormed over Zoom. You had your like giant mohawk. Remember? I found it. Oh my god. You're going to fucking kill me. We talked about Calgary's nightclub scene in 2005, and they tried to help me remember our first night out dancing together, which I think was at Manhattan Nightclub and featured a German DJ and producer named Steve Murano. How often were you two going out in 2005? Five days a week. Yeah. Well, no, we we like slept on Sundays. (laughs) What do you remember about your first night out dancing? Yeah, somebody took me to a club. When I was 17, I had a fake ID. There was this like underground rave club in Lethbridge, and they like, took me there and snuck me in. I was like, oh my God. Yes. Oh, God, my first club experience. Um, I moved there. I moved to Calgary in 2003. Um, and I think it was a Jean because she moved down with me. And um, it was kind of cool because I came out to her and she came out to me. So it was kind of really like going out dancing. It was just like nobody knew you dance away. Like you're pretty much like reinventing your identity and leaving that small rural um, dusty behind and everything like that. Right. Um, it was definitely, it took a while to get comfortable on the dance floor for sure because, you know, I didn't know how to dance to like all this like crazy music. I'm trying to remember more about our first night out together, which I think was at Manhattan Nightclub. What do you remember about the club? Do you remember the sketchy dance floor in Manhattan? There was like missing oh, tiles. So. Like tripping all over the place. Totally. <laughs> Dusty, Adrian, and I hadn't spoken in years, but it was amazing to catch up with them. For some reason, our memories of 2005 were a little blurry. But Adrian has tons of photographs from that era. I'm so glad I went through my awkward baby raver phase before Facebook. To see photos of Adrian, Dusty, and little baby raver Paul, follow Rave Dad's diary on Instagram. While we couldn't nail down the specific date we first went dancing together, the chat with Adrian and Dusty did remind me of a local DJ called Titus One, who was a resident at Calgary's Manhattan Club and is still active today. Well, as active as any DJ is in 2020. 
Through Titus One's meticulously detailed website, I learned that he once shared the stage with Steve Murano. Ding, ding. I sent an email to Tito Madrid, a.k.a. Titus One, and he got back to me right away. We connected on Zoom and talked about the days of mini-disc players and penny highball drink specials. I'm trying to piece back together my first night out dancing, which was in Calgary with <laughs> my, my, my girlfriend at the time, Adrian, and her friend, Dusty. And it was at Manhattan Nightclub. Ooh, those are the other days. What do you remember about Manhattan Nightclub around 2005? Oh, man. So just like a brief history of like Manhattan. It, so a long time ago, there was a, a collective of guys that, um, you know, they were looking for places. And then this is in the days when regular club shows were happening on Wednesday, Thursdays. We didn't really get like the EDM boom that had like the prime pick of the day of the week. Right. Um, and, and, and it's understandable. I mean, most venues. They didn't want to mess with their format. They were, they had, were happy with their numbers on the weekends with their top 40. So it was like, it was really hard to get like a regular thing without a headliner on like, uh, you know, any place really. And there's only a few things that were kind of going on. Um, Manhattan's was one that popped up. It was kind of like a, a failing club. Um, and there's different dynamics that they added in, but just, it was all about the culture of the music. Every week, every night of the week had its thing. Like one was more like break em- emphasis um like breaks breaks music like just new breaks new school breaks you know just big room breaks big beat all that stuff uh the, the other one was a little bit more like electro set and then i remember we teamed up with this other guy they'd offer us offered us a thursday and it was really hard because it was um it's a thursday right and like no one wants to go out and get wasted or do anything and have to wake up friday and have to wake up early to go to work or whatever right so they gave us like a little more leeway with aglc back in those days um people were allowed to do like cheaper drink specials. So in those days we were, we did like a thing called penny highballs and it was nuts because they kind of played with the structure a bit. So like we would get waves and waves of people coming in like constantly busy throughout the night, but it was um, more of like an open, if you want to call EDM within those days, more electronic format. We had both guys that were, you know, electro or, you know, hard house or funky breaks or, you know, just all sorts of things. Um, all the nights are pretty strong. Like they're just very, very community driven. Um, is really just another world, another time. Um, and and just exposing everyone to just different varieties, kind of just open up, open up another window, I guess. So there's because there, we would get a mix of people that weren't really into like the scene at that time. That were, you know, people that were were huge into like the warehouse nightclub or the the after nightlife kind of thing. Um, it would kind of open the, open up the doors to like, at time I met some of my, some of my closest friends back in the day, they weren't even into electronic music, but they would come because of the penny eyeballs. And then they would realize like, Oh, this is the kind of music. Like this is in top 40. This is cool. The penny highballs are legendary because, um, when I was talking to Adrian and Dusty, they're like penny highballs. It brought, the, <laughs> it, it brought the people in. That was like the hook. Yeah. <laughs> do you, do, do you remember playing with Steve Murano? Oh yeah, yep. Steve Rano was amazing back then. I think it was uh it was interesting though, because like West Coast, he was he had a really big draw. He was like in general, like in um just had a really big emphasis on like a, his own sound. It was kind of like an electro meets kind of like hard house, meets kind of like it was a little faster paced, you know, 134, 135 kind of BPM on like electro, it was a sped up kind of electro, but it was 
unique enough that he had a pretty big draw. My first night out dancing. You've helped me. You've helped me figure it out. <laughs> um, I, I, we're gonna share a mix from you. Okay. From this time frame, and I was doing research online, and when I stumbled across your website, it really sped up my research because you have this immaculate website with dozens of mixes available on it archived why is your website so great like everything i mean even when i started producing in like around 2007 um the one thing i always believed in is like i don't know like most guys will want to change like their names or do whatever and then they come into certain pinnacle points in their career where they want to you know transition to something else and that's something you know kind of leave it to its legacy or let it die kind of thing but I always believe that it's I'm always constantly growing, constantly learning. And it's just been a constant journey. It's just regardless of what it is, like I love all genres. I uh, definitely not one of those genre shamer kind of type guys. Like um it's weird, right? Like it's it's funny because sometimes you'll talk to some some people and they grow up and they it's like they it's like they pretend Tiesto didn't exist. And it's like, no man, Tiesto was amazing. <laughs> like used to love sparkles and guys like DJ L and like trance and side trance and I would never like all those sounds just influenced me in so many ways. And they kind of, they're kind of like little milestones that bring you back to those points. And you remember like, Oh yeah, I remember loving that music when I was at that time frame and the people that you meet and the memories that you share, they're just always constantly ingrained. And it's just a constant, uh, uh, I don't know, just another piece to your puzzle, right. To just creating who you are or who you're going to be anyways. But no, no way. I never shy from that. It's just, uh, really and i always wanted to capture that i kept every photo every video every everything and like even with production wise like i always released whatever even if it was at the time i I loved it (laughs) it might have been like by regular standards not the greatest produced song or whatever but it was just part of the journey right like i just wanted to share growth and um development you know it sounds change things change but some of the root kind of signatures are always the same. The mix we're going to listen to is called The Grind. And <laughs> it's, uh, it says this is a solid blend of club electro bass lines and high energy grooves featuring the latest in electro and banging house. Release date July 2006. T- tell me what it was like to record a mix like this back in the day. Oh man, in those days. So back in the days, like I was, a, I was originally a vinyl DJ for for a long time um and i was one of those guys that was like very purist i was very you know um i know never never cds never digital never anything is vinyl 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 and vinyl was very expensive and it's funny that it all added up like i could have bought probably members you know lamborghini <laughs> money that i you know people could look at as like a waste but it was, it was part of the journey right like i think by the end of the vinyl days i maybe cashed out at about 2100 pieces I actually got rid of all of it to different friends, family. Uh, the only thing I kept is like the thing that was dear to my heart was uh, 300 pieces of Speed Garage and like UK Speed Garage that you can't find anywhere that those guys are like the purest of purest. Like they, there was even a time where they wouldn't even release things digitally. They just refused to. Like if you wanted the song, you had to buy it on vinyl, <laughs> even up to like maybe up to 2015, 16. Um, but yeah, like um, back in those days, I had a mini displayer optical line in i had to you had to really 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 be cautious of uh your your lines and 
not having, you know, redlining or uh, really EQing a little more immaculate because it, it would record on another, you know, analog kind of output and it would sound terrible <laughs> if you max out all your EQs, right? Um, so yeah, you have your two turntables, you mixer, mixer out to like a little mini disc player and you have to kind of like hit it, record, and you have a little bit of dead space or whatever. And then back in those days, we'd kind of try and, and even to chop it, um, there wasn't really a lot of really good audio editing programs. There was just, you would run it through something that would burn it as a CD and then you'd have to recut the CD to break it into pieces because people wanted to listen to tracks individually because back in those days, people didn't do that. It was just a continuous mix of 60 minutes. <laughs> And some guy, sometimes some guys are like, hey, I really like that song. It's like halfway through, but I just want to listen to that song. <laughs> so it kind of brought up other challenges in the future, but it was interesting. It was, it was good times. I mean, you'd sit there, there was, you know, you, you'd mess up a mix. You, you would stop the whole thing and you'd have to start it all over again. <laughs> the perfectionist and everyone would always kick in and kind of, it would turn like a, a 60 minute mix into like a week long ordeal sometimes. <laughs> 90.9 FM CJSW. That was Titus One talking about all of the trouble you had to go to, even just uh, in, in 2007, to record a DJ mix. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary. My name is Paul Brooks, and this is the final weekly episode of Rave Dad's Diary. This program is going to be moving to a monthly podcast format, and that's going to be a lot more sustainable for me because I want to keep this show going and keep exploring these concepts. So we listened to a clip from episode one of Rave Dad's Diary featuring my ex-girlfriend, Adrian, who got me into the rave scene uh, our friend Dusty, who was one of the first people that took me out dancing. And I also spoke with Tito Madrid, Titus One, who is uh, still incredibly active in the Calgary scene. And I recommend you go check out his, his website, Titus One. Uh, that's Titus and the number one dot CA. You can listen back to a huge archive of mixes that, uh, you know, I actually have not really found anything comparable out there uh, that that shows what it was actually like back then. Like like Tito said, you know, a lot of people are quick to uh, erase the the early stuff that they were into because they feel like they might grow out of it or that it's, you know, it's corny. But uh, it's really amazing to look back at... Uh, where the music came from. And from my vantage point, I can actually see these music trends coming back again. Everything old will be new again. So I said before the break that I was going to tell you how long that took me to make. And the very first episode of Rave Dad's Diary, I think I put about 35 hours into. And the show, when it started, the first 12 episodes broadcast uh, very early in the morning, I think from 4 to 6 a.m., and they were two hours long, and that was just totally silly to try and make a two-hour-long spoken word program about electronic music, but I managed to bang out 12 episodes with the help of the CJSW staff, and then in March 2021, this show became a weekly program, and one of the very first shows that I broadcast uh, in, in the weekly format was an interview with a local music legend, Tona Ohama. Uh, 
So we're going to listen back to my March 2021 conversation, just a clip of it with Tona Ohama about his album, My Electronic Country Album. Trailer for sale or rent Rooms to let 50 cents No phone, no pool, no pets I've got no cigarettes uh, But two hours of bush and broom Buys a eight for twelve for this room I'm a man of means by no means King of the road Third boxcar, midnight train Destination banger, main Old worn-out suit and shoes I don't pay no union dues I smoke old stogies I have found Sure not to pick around I'm a man of means by no means King of the road I know every engineer on every train And all of the children And all of the names And every handout in every town And every lock that ain't locked When no one's around I sing trailers for sale or rent Rooms to let 50 cents Enough on no pool, no I ain't got no cigarettes, uh, but two hours of pushing room buys a eight or twelve for bedroom. I'm a man of means by no means, king of the road, trailers for sale or rent, rooms to let fifty cents, enough on the pool. I ain't got no cigarettes about two hours of pushing. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary, and we just heard the beginning of a new album by Ohama called My Electronic Country Album. Joining me to talk about this intriguing new album is Tona Walt Ohama. It's nice to meet you on the radio. Yeah, hi, Paul. I'm really happy to be doing this. How long have you had the idea for this country album? Um, it's been about eight or nine years, actually, quite a while. Like ten years ago, I was listening to a lot of chiptune music, 8-bit music. So I love things like 8-bit Led Zeppelin and 8-bit Dark Side of the Moon. But I was wondering if you could do that sort of music with vocals. And then I wanted to take it to the next level, so I, I decided to do a prog rock album, but just use uh, monophonic synthesizers. So the album I chose was called Thick as a Brick by Jethro Tull. And if you look at any list of the greatest prog rock albums of all time, Thick as a Brick is going to be really high on that list. It's become like one of the most iconic prog rock albums of all time. And it was the first album I ever bought with my own money. I was 12 years old and it had just come out and it's a really important album to me. So I 
I recreated or covered this album. It's what's unique about it. It's one song, so it's one song, forty-three minutes long. That was unheard of in 1972, and、uh, my version. Matches up pretty closely. Like if you play them side by side, tempo wise, they'll stay in sync for the whole forty-three minutes. So I was really meticulous about trying to recreate it, and I was so happy with the results. I decided to enter it in the Juno Awards in the electronic category. And I wasn't trying to get nominated. I didn't think I'd get on the shortlist. But what I wanted was for the judges to hear my work because I thought maybe someone might appreciate it. And then my entry was disqualified. There's no cover songs in the electronic category allowed. At least back then, that may have changed now. I don't know.、Uh, and some people went to my defense. They said things like "Soft Cells," "Tainted Love." That's a cover song, but the ruling stood. I appealed it, and they、uh, they just disqualified me. And that means. No judges are going to hear the album, and then I got the thought. Well, if I was doing a country song, country cover, there'd be no problem.、And、that's where the idea came from. Was it always going to be in part a spoken word album? <laughs>、uh, no, not at all. Like it was just going to be country songs.、Uh, the spoken word part sort of evolved and came about later. And、um, I, I released this album called "Girls Monosynth Tower." G R R L Z. That's how my wife wanted me to spell girls, and that's 2017. And what that was was I took existing recordings by female singer-songwriters that had no synthesizers on them, and then I added synthesizers. And each artist on the album got a page. There was like a photo, and credits, and liner notes.、Uh, little story maybe about how I knew the girl or why I chose the song. And what I found was nobody—shouldn't、uh, say nobody—but like very few people read album, album notes anymore. They don't do it. So I think we lost something. Like if you don't have the context. I don't think my recordings are that interesting. You know, if I'm competing against every song in the world, there's not there's not a lot there. And、uh, anyways, I what I wanted to do then, I thought, okay, I'm going to record the liner notes. Then people might listen to them, right? And because you can make these multiple Spotify playlists, really easy to make an album with the liner notes, like a director's cut, and then make an album with just the songs. So I thought this is a good idea, but it turned out the idea really sucked. Actually,、uh, the liner notes don't sound very good, and so it sort of grew into stories. But、um, that's how the idea started to become more of a spoken word album. The album contains stories about potato farming, drugs, near-death experiences, clubbing in New York. And water skiing aqueducts in southern Alberta behind a pickup truck. Are all the stories true? Yeah, of course they're true.、Uh, <laughs> of course they're true. I think everybody can tell when a story is authentic. Like 
My life's been so crazy. There's no reason to make up anything. The stories are 100% true. The album is riveting. Oh, thanks. During some of the spoken word sections, I felt like I was listening to a compelling true crime podcast. <laughs> are, a lot of the stories are dark. Hmm. Was it difficult telling some of these stories? Oh, yeah. It was really hard to to tell some of these stories. Yeah. Some of them... Okay, i got to tell you, like some of them were so... Uh, we'll probably talk about this later, but the early recordings were really bad, right? The stories did not sound good. But they were so painful to tell, I did not want to record them again. I didn't want to tell those stories. One of my favorite parts on my Electronic Country album, and I think one of the happiest stories, is where you talk about a very special person in your life, Mia. Mia's story and my story, it's like one of the great romance stories of all time, I think. Like, I'm in my 60s, and every day Mia's going to say, she loves me so much her heart feels like it's going to burst. We are just totally in love. It's amazing we got together. In 1983, I was performing at the Pump House Theatre in Calgary, and that's where I met Mia. Mia was the first person I ever met with hair dyed red and a pierced nose. She'd been living in Blackheath in England, studying at the Le Bon Centre for Movement and Dance, and was one of the original Blitz kids. I stood in the wings and watched Mia perform. She was dancing to one of my favourite songs from the 80s, Forbidden Colours by David Sylvian and Reach Komodo. And it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. 1983. For me, the early 80s will always be about that moment and the color black. All the walls in my recording studio were black. I dressed in black. I even wore black eyeliner and black nail polish. Mia was also going through her black period and she had legally changed her name to Mia Blackwell because she said she wore Blackwell. Together, we certainly had a look. We'd go to clubs in New York City, and the doorman would always wave us right in, no matter how long the line was. Clubs like CBGB's, Area, Limelight, Danceteria. Area changed the entire club to a new theme once a month. Limelight was in this beautiful old church. Danceteria is in the movie Desperately Seeking Susan. Mia and I saw the movie Liquid Sky at the Waverly, and if you have any interest in the 80s, you should check out Liquid Sky. I think it's the most accurate 80s movie ever made. When I first started performing, I'd go around with a ghetto blaster to play my backing tracks. And it looked just like Adrian's rhythm box performance in Liquid Sky. That scene always makes me smile. It takes me right back to my early days performing at Ten Foot Henry's. Now the original Man in Black, of course, was Johnny Cash. In many ways, I feel my relationship with Mia was like Johnny's relationship with June Carter. I know this will sound like a cliche, but I know that love at first sight exists because it happened to me. And 30 years after that Pump House Theatre performance, Mia and I got married. It was surreal to stand at the altar of Nogs United Church and watch Mia walk down the aisle to the song Forbidden Colors. This song is Ring of Fire, Originally recorded by Johnny Cash in 1963. Written by June Carter and Merle Kilgore. 
a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire FM CJSW. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary. My name is Paul Brooks, and we just heard a clip from an episode of Rave Dad's Diary that originally broadcast in March of 2021 featuring Tona Ohama. And we were talking about his album, My Electronic Country Album, which came out last year. And that is probably my favorite episode of Rave Dad's Diary that I've produced so far for, for many reasons. Um, I've been a fan of Ohama's music for, for some time. And uh, so to connect with him uh, and somebody that I think is really cool, always exciting. But Ohama has actually stayed in touch with me since uh, doing that interview. And we have some plans to intersect on some creative projects. So that's uh, one of the exciting things that has come from that episode. Uh, Another uh, connection that I got to make through that episode of Rave Dad's Diary is uh, actually it it helped connect me with my my career path that I'm on currently. Uh, I sent that episode to some friends and to some journalists because I really enjoyed the episode and I wanted uh, other people to appreciate it as well. And one of the folks that I sent it to, uh, Kim from Take Aim Media, she reached out to me and offered me uh, some part-time work 
And that has since grown into me now working full-time with Kim at Take Aim Media. So uh, CJSW has a way of doing that for me. Uh, it, it helps me connect the dots in my life and lead me to uh, things that are important to me. And that is just uh, that is available, I think, to, to anybody who wants to come to CJSW and, and volunteer. Uh, it's a choose-your-own-adventure trip. You can do whatever you want with it. I have one more clip to share with you from Rave Dad's Diary, the the weekly edition. In case you're just tuning in, this is the final weekly edition of Rave Dad's Diary. I started doing this show uh, in September of 2020, did 12 episodes. In March of 2021, I started doing this show weekly and... Now, in April of 2022, uh, I am signing off as a weekly producer of this show. However, it will transition into a monthly podcast. It's like the incredible shrinking show. I started out with a two-hour-long podcast, which was just totally crazy. Don't recommend it. Turned it into a one-hour weekly program. And now I think it will live most comfortably and polished as a half-hour monthly podcast and uh, i'm working with our podcast coordinator lily and our program director tyra and the whole gang here at cjsw they're so supportive and wonderful thank you for all of your help i love you guys okay one more clip for you um This is kind of me thinking to the future of Rave Dad's Diary and stuff that I want to explore on future episodes. Uh, I'm very into harm reduction, and I've been involved in the harm reduction movement um, since I first started getting into dance music, and I saw harm reduction in action. So I'm very interested in exploring harm reduction and responses to the drug poisoning crisis that we are currently living through and how that intersects with um, underground music uh, subcultures, not just electronic music, but I think all music subcultures have, uh, you know, substances that they, that they prefer to use. Um, I, I'm also really interested in the, the I guess, other side of, of that, which is uh, the application of psychedelics and uh, substances that are currently scheduled substances um, and those being applied to therapies, um, modern therapies. So uh, on one program, I spoke with uh, Dr. Philippe Lucas, and we talked about the Canadian uh, Psychedelic Survey, uh, which is very exciting. I also got to speak with one of my favorite music and subculture, counterculture journalists, Michelle Luke. Michelle Luke and I had a conversation about psychedelics and music and how those things are interacting with one another in 2022. So here's a little clip with Michelle Luke. Michelle writes an incredible substack called Rave New World. It's sort of like Rave Dad's Diary, but on the scale of the United States and uh, beyond. <laughs> and Michelle goes to some really interesting places, talks to the people who are doing this stuff and writes an amazing gonzo-style journalism newsletter 
called Rave New World. So here's Michelle and I from just a few weeks back. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW. Describe what Rave New World is for the uninitiated. (laughs) Well, it's basically a newsletter on Substack where... um, I kind of bring together all of my interests in drugs and music and nightlife, counterculture under one umbrella, sort of examining the ways that, you know, music and drugs are changing in the 21st century. You know, what we consider to be counterculture, I think, is really complicated right now because of drug legalization and sort of like the Silicon Valley takeover of psychedelics. Like, I think the question of like, what is counterculture today? Is doing drugs even inherently subversive anymore? You know, I think a lot of the sort of paradigms and um, ways of thinking about, um, you know, resistance or some kind of, um, yeah, some kind of resistance to um, dominant culture is really shifting because of all these political and cultural um, changes. So, you know, the newsletter is sort of like, um, I think of it as sort of like field notes from the front lines, because (laughs) I find myself really sometimes on the margins of things that I feel are about to break into the mainstream, but haven't quite yet. So it still feels very fringe. And I just find myself at absurd parties sometimes or absurd experiences and just want to kind of give a very direct and raw accounting of what I'm witnessing in California right now and all over the world too, a little bit. I, I like, I think a lot of people try to, to do that, but you're really good at doing it. Like the, the writing is, is really, I think it's really excellent. And um, I get a lot of value out of your newsletter because it shows me perspectives that I would never be introduced to, especially over, um, you know, in, in the region that I'm living in, things have been locked down pretty tight. Um, and, uh, you've been out, uh, definitely pushing some boundaries and, uh, exploring what's still going on out there. So thank you for your reporting on the front lines. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> and, and, uh, to anybody out there who wants to check out some amazing independent journalism, uh rave new world you know if you if you give it a search it shows up and uh you can subscribe to your Substack. thanks yeah you know i think there's real value right now in sort of underground media especially when you're covering underground cultures i think you know there's real value in sort of um Speaking to perhaps a more in the know audience, people who are already kind of open minded, I find a freedom in not having to explain myself (laughs) Uh, and just sort of assume that everyone is sort of, you know, on board for psychedelic legalization. And that's the starting point. And then we can kind of get into like more interesting discussions of the nuances in that sort of movement. Well, let's bring it back to our niche conversation on psychedelics and music. I've seen some discourse about music for psychedelic therapy being a new genre or something that is being presented for the first time. But of course, this music and uh, pairing music for or pairing music with psychedelics uh, is is something that is very old and owes itself to indigenous practices. 
I'm wondering if you can touch on some examples of music being paired with psychedelic use uh, through time and in different regions of the world. Yeah. So, you know, music has been really important to psychedelic therapy um, pretty much for as long as it's existed. You know, I think um, a lot of people by now have heard of ayahuasca. Um, During ayahuasca ceremonies, you know, the shaman typically sings these songs called Icaros that are um, really important in guiding the trip of of the user. And, you know, every shaman almost has a different style of of singing and musical presentation. So, um, you know, you can choose a shaman specifically for like how much you connect with their music. Um, And then, you know, uh, in Mexico, they have some mushroom concerts in, in, I'm sorry, mushroom ceremonies (laughs) in, in the villages. Um, where, you know, the most famous Mexican curandera is called Maria Sabina, and she would um, chant these really beautiful songs that were almost like poetry, you know, the way that she sort of like sings as the voice of the mushroom. And then, you know, my favorite genre, I guess, of of psychedelic traditional music is um, the Ibogaine drumming in West Africa, which um, can go up to 150 BPM per minute, which to me, that's like basically techno. (laughs) And they go that quickly because, um, you know, the drug is a very strong stimulant, uh, meaning Ibogaine. And so, um, you know, they say that having those really high BPMs um, actually helps you to relax and um, focus your mind when you're feeling super stimulated, which again, like really reminds me of the feeling of going to a techno rave and having like really fast paced music just kind of obliterate you and you reach this level of Zen. Those are some really great examples. And um, yeah, I mean, it makes me think about uh, then um, I compare it and contrast it with some of my own self-experimentation um, in uh, dance clubs and, and at music festivals. Um, and uh, yeah, those, <laughs> the, the parallels between, uh, you know, modern, modern um, dance music and, and what you were just talking about. I mean, I think they're, I think they're pretty clear. Um, you know, you, you've been investigating modern approaches to music for psychedelic therapies is is there a consensus on uh, what is the the best music to listen to uh, when you're on psychedelics, or are there certain psychedelics uh, substances that uh, pair better with certain kinds of music, anecdotally or in any research uh, that you've come across? Well, I think that's the really interesting question that people are trying to figure out right now. You know, I think that. The simple answer is no, there is no consensus on what the best type of music is for psychedelics, but there are a lot of really interesting musicians and even companies trying to kind of figure out what that equation could look like. And I think like there is some standards that we can look at. For example, in the 70s, a bunch of researchers basically came up with a narrative sort of journey that describes the journey of a psychedelic experience, which is like onset, peak, climax, and then come down. And, you know, the the musical journey is supposed to sort of 
lead you through that arc, which I think is really important. It's sort of the idea of music creating a sense of structure, a container, a sense of momentum to guide you through a very formless and sometimes chaotic experience. So that's what the music is doing. Um, and so for that reason, you know, people are finding that playlists of individual songs are often not as effective mm. because they kind of switch between so many different um, voices and moods that they can be a little bit like distracting. Um, so what's really interesting in my guardian article, I guess, was talking about, um, how the development of digital technology has allowed, um, the creation of like long form mixes. Um, that don't have to fit onto like a single record or something. So you can have these like four hour long, um, continuous mixes that can last the exact stretch of time as a psychedelic trip. So that's only something that was really possible quite recently. And because of that, there are all these music labels coming out that are kind of creating long form ambient compositions for psychedelic trips. And then on the other hand, (laughs) um, you also have these sort of uh, more Silicon Valley companies that are working with um, AI technology to kind of quantify, you know, what are the exact timbres and pitches and rhythms going on in this track? How can we kind of match it to what this person is trying to get out of their experience? It starts getting extremely... (laughs) Um, calculated and, mm-hmm. and, you know, data driven, which is also kind of interesting to kind of parse how that could work and if it actually does, uh, have some kind of, uh, dem- demonstrable effect or if it's just sort of pseudoscience. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, what is the, the app called? Are the waveform or wavepath? Um, yeah. There's one called wavepath. There's one called spirit tune. There's a bunch, you know, and, uh, some of these are using AI technology. And, um, I mean, in, in my personal experiences with AI and music, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, (laughs) it's, it's definitely getting there, but there's still kind of a synthetic, um, undertone to some of the music I find. And, um, yeah, I, I, you know, the, the idea of AI being used in a musical experience to pair with psychedelics, I don't know, something about the notion kind of turns me off personally, but, uh, uh, how, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that actually a lot of the people who are working with AI even admitted that just using AI itself is not it because it does feel robotic and the technology is just not quite there yet. So what a lot of these companies do is actually work with human composers as like to create the starting material and that the AI kind of comes in to quantify and analyze and kind of augment that kind of composition. So there still has to be, I think, an element of like the human hand in there for it to have some kind of uh, emotional resonance. It kind of makes me think about the debate in some psychedelic circles about the difference between a lab-derived psychedelic and a psychedelic that is found in nature. 
But I think this question actually becomes interesting when we kind of bring it back to music, right? Like, is music for psychedelic therapy more effective when you have someone live, like in the room? (laughs) I think, you know, um, I've been hearing of some psychedelic clinics that are either on the verge of opening or already open where they are bringing in like live musicians to perform (laughs) while you're having your trip, you know, which is sort of like how they do it in, in traditional ceremony. Like you have someone there, you can actually feel the vibrations in your body. The person is responding to you in the room to your cues. And, um, you know, of course these sorts of experiences are extremely cost prohibitive. So mm-hmm. for the most part, no, not many people are going to be able to afford such a bespoke experience, but something about that actually does feel like maybe more true in that there probably to me seems like <laughs> a bit more of an advantage in having someone really there with you in the room. Yeah. I didn't even think about that, but, um, that would really take it up to the next level. Uh, you know, which I think segues into um, the, the the privilege that individuals have to possess in 2022 <laughs> to even uh, access this sort of treatment. I'm concerned that the, 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 good things that are being uh, promoted about this therapy, you know, uh, it it could actually end up um, just being inaccessible to the people who need it the most. And uh, yeah, I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think you're right in that there's absolutely no doubt that psychedelics are being massively gentrified right now. And um, there's a lot of very sort of, you know, conglomerate energy coming into the space. Um, But I think that, you know, the underground is just going to keep growing. We've seen a sort of parallel story happen with cannabis, which I think is very interesting to kind of look at as a precedent for what's happening. Of course, what happened with cannabis is really different, but um, what's really, uh, emerging about cannabis legalization, especially in California right now, is that it kind of backfired in that, um, because it was so cost prohibitive and difficult for a lot of marginalized folks to kind of enter the space and it got hoovered up by all of this sort of like, you know, big corporate energy, um, that, the underground is now three times the size of the legal market. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that something very similar is going to happen with psychedelics because of just how cost prohibitive it is to pay for these types of therapies. You know, going to a ketamine clinic is already like five to $8,000 for a course of treatment. And, you know, the next psychedelic to be legalized is probably going to be MDMA and it's going to be even more expensive because you're going to need to, have not one but two therapists in the room with you at all times so you can kind of crunch the numbers and already see how much money that's going to um that's going to cost and you know we're talking about sort of the consumer side of it but i think that you know in terms of providing these experiences as well i think um yeah, I'm definitely interested in seeing how um the sort of 
narrative forms around um, who gets to kind of grow or, or, or create and produce these medicines as well. Michelle, what do you listen to when you're on psychedelics? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that I prefer listening to music that's made by people who seem to have actually done psychedelics. <laughs> you know, I think there's real value in kind of understanding um, viscerally what that experience feels like and that musicians who um actually use these substances have a bit of a leg up over like you know just using like a classical um playlist or something like that um so i've been really kind of turning to two labels in particular recently for my at-home trips one is called going in it's a sub-label of um, The Bunker, which is a New York techno label. But for this sub-label going in, they actually focus on uh, music for internal journeys. And it's all made by, like, really cool club producers and DJs. Um, they're actually doing a live stream really soon with a lot of really psychedelic music. So people should check that out. And then the other label is called, it's based in LA. It's called Leaving Records. And they do a very interesting, um, approach to ambient, so-called ambient music, um, that's very experimental and very gentle. And they also do a lot of, um, outdoor daytime parties in park in a park here in LA that also feels very psychedelic and shroomy. You know, it's not explicitly a shroom party, but I think that in terms of the the vibe, the crowd, the sort of acceptance of being in this sort of loose, groovy space, it is a very shroomy experience. So those are the two labels I really like. <laughs> Amazing. Can you shout those labels out one more time? Leaving records and going in. I'm excited to check them out and uh, I'll find some music to add into the show. Cool. Michelle, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today about this topic. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad that we could have this opportunity to connect. Yes. Thank you so much, Paul. It was a fun conversation. FM CJSW Rave Dad's Diary is coming to a close Uh, Thank you very much for tuning in today This is the last weekly edition Rave Dad's Diary will return in May As a monthly podcast So stay tuned for more information about that Uh, I just want to say thank you to all of the CJSW staff Who have supported me on my journey in making this show Uh, Thank you to all of the guests Uh, Thank you to my wife and daughter for supporting my uh, neuroses. Um, And just keep it locked to CJSW. Got the best dang show.